0: Welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. We have tons of people here in person, and I know we have others who are watching online. So if you are here in person, would you put your hands together and welcome in our online family as well as our guests who are here today. So glad to have all of you guys joining us here today. And I'd like to start off the sermon today by testing your candy knowledge. Any of you ever heard of this? Have you ever heard of Bean Boozled Jelly Beans? Anybody know what these are? Okay, I see some hands. Well, if you don't know what they are, basically, this takes playing with your food to a whole new level. And I've got some here with me. Basically, what happens is, it's a little game, and there's a spinner in here, you spin it, I just lost a jelly bean, but you spin the spinner and then it lands on a color. And so you've got all these nice looking colors that look appetizing. And so you say, okay, it landed on the brown one. Well, this brown one, could be one of two flavors it could be chocolate pudding so that sounds pretty appetizing right but it could also be canned dog food so you're just not sure which one it is so for instance if it lands on the yellow one it could be buttered popcorn but it also could be rotten eggs so you just don't know what it's going to be and I played this with my kids this week they had never tried it and it was great watching their facial expressions as they got some of these horrible tasting jelly beans but I thought we would do a little demonstration this morning so I've asked a friend of mine a little buddy of mine to come up here and join me so Hunter where are you buddy are you in the room yeah come on up let's give Hunter a round of applause as he comes up to the stage all right Hunter Hunter seeks me out just about every single week wants to tell me his memory verse or give me a high five or something so he's gonna help me out today hey Hunter are you ready to go here to try these can you tell everybody how old you are Three. Three years old. All right. So, uh, my daughter, Addie, she's four, and you guys are buddies, aren't you? Yeah, you guys see each other in class. So, you ready to play? Now, I asked his parents permission to do this before we did, okay? So, everything's good. So, I'm going to, you want to spin it? You can spin it. Okay, so it landed on a yellow one. And a yellow one, I already told them, could be either buttered popcorn or rotten eggs. Which one do you hope it is? Do you know? You just want it to taste good? Okay, well, let's see, are you ready? So go ahead and pull out a yellow one. There's a yellow one right there. You wanna pull it out? Ready? Chew it up. Does it taste good or bad? (laughs) Bad? He said bad with thumbs up. All right, bad, okay, awesome. Does it taste like rotten eggs? Is it, oh, do you wanna spit it out? (laughs) You want to spit it out? I got a trash can here for you. There you go, buddy. You can spit it out if you want to. (laughs) Hey, hey, Hunter, do you want to try it again? Do you want to try it again? No, okay, (laughs) all right. All right, well, buddy, you're awesome. Can I have a high five? For you helping me out today, I got a little prize for you over here. Are you ready? I talked to your parents, and they said that you like dinosaurs. Is that true? Watch this. Can you hear that? Is that cool? Do you want that? You can have it help me out. And I've got you some good tasting candy as well. So you can take that with you. Thanks, Hunter. Let's give Hunter a round of applause. That was awesome. I love our little kids here and Hunter's one, if you see him, he's got a big personality so you won't be able to miss him. But I love, I love little kids. I love their facial expressions. And I, like I said, I tried this out with my kids and they, some of the, some of the faces they made as they tried, you know, dog food and whatever, skunk spray and different flavors that they had. It was great. But on the back of the Bean Boozled box, it says this, there's a caution and it says, these jelly beans may look alike, but they could not taste more different from each other. Think you can tell them apart? We dare you. See, they all look appetizing, but some of them aren't. And you don't find out which, which are bad until you actually try them. According to recent studies, two out of three people in our country, two out of three Americans, claim to be followers of Jesus. The challenge is, when you look at behavior trends in our culture today, Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between Christians and everyone else. It's as if Christians sometimes just fade into the background. They're camouflaged. And it's hard to tell the difference between them and everyone else. And Jesus seemed to know that this might be the case, that we might fall into that trap. And so he weighed in on this and he said, no, you should be able to tell the difference right away between my followers and everyone else. Listen to what he says. He says in the Gospel of John, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Jesus here says that the one character trait that should distinguish us from everyone else is our love. We should stand out because of the way that we love. We are to love people as he has loved us. Let me put it this way. The quality and the quantity of our love should prove to the world, the watching world, that we are who we say we are, followers of Jesus. The quality and the quantity of our love should be the clearest indicator to the watching world that we are who we claim to be, followers of of Jesus. And I wonder if that's always the case. Because this should be true in all of our relationships. Living our marriages, our home life, parents and children, our friendships, how we interact with our co workers, our community, our neighbors. We should be a visible demonstration of God's love when we interact with others. Do you notice what Jesus said before he said that your love will prove to the world that you are my disciples? Look at what he says, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. In other words, we have a different definition of love than the rest of the world. See, we don't love as the world loves. We love according to God's definition. We love as he has loved us, and that type of love is hard to find in this world, He is our standard for love, and that's very different from how the world defines love at times. And so in every relationship that we have, marriage, children, parents, friendships, in our communities, whatever, we are to be a tangible expression of God's love. So let me say this very clearly. Being a tangible expression of God's love should be the ultimate goal of every relationship we have. In our marriages, we are to love one another as God has loved us. We are to forgive and show grace as God has forgiven and shown grace to us. We are to make sacrifices for one another as God sacrificed his only son for us. In our homes, we are to love one another as God has loved us. It's true for parents when it comes to children. It's true for children when it comes to parents. It's true for our extended families as well. It comes to our friendships we are to love one another as God has loved us and in our communities we're to love as God has loved us but here's the thing in order to love one another as God has loved us we have to live in his love see we have to be experiencing his love on a daily basis and also showing him the love that he deserves because our enemy knows That if we don't have the right relationship with God that we need to have, he can hijack what God intended for our good. God intended marriage and our home lives and for uh, our friendships and all the relationships we have to be for our good. But if we're not right with him, it's going to affect every single relationship we have. Our enemy knows that if our relationship with God isn't healthy, our relationships with others will never be what they could and should be. See, the vertical relationship we have with God affects all of the horizontal relationships we have on Earth. And as I've been saying, that's true for marriage and friendships and our home life, but it's especially true when it comes to how we treat people in general. It's especially true when it comes to how we treat our neighbors. And this is one relationship that we sometimes overlook and miss. And we're going to wrap up the series today talking about how Jesus wants us to interact with our neighbors. And he's gonna teach us about this in a very famous parable. You've probably heard it before. It's probably the second most famous parable that Jesus ever told. It's called the Parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's found in Luke chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles or Bible app on your phone or tablet, go ahead and look up with me in Luke chapter 10. That's where we're gonna to study today. That's where we're gonna be camped out today. And as you're looking up that parable, I just want to remind you in case you're new to church or you have forgotten. A parable is just an earthly story that has a higher meaning, a spiritual or heavenly meaning and Jesus taught a lot in parables it helped people understand deep truths that he was trying to get across and so in Luke chapter 10 Jesus decides to teach about who our neighbor is or who our neighbors are through this parable that we call the parable of the good Samaritan and the reason why Jesus teaches on this subject is because of a question that he was asked Luke chapter 10 verse 25 starts like this On one occasion, an expert in the law, now this is an expert in the religious law, the scripture, okay? This is a Jewish teacher here. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, on the surface, that seems like a pretty good question, right? In fact, this was a question that was debated a lot in Jesus' day among the religious elite. They asked, what does a person really need to do to inherit eternal life? And like I said, it sounds like a good question, but you need to understand the motives behind this question. The reason why they debated it is because the religious elite wanted to know, what's the bare minimum that I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? What's the bare minimum that I need to do in order to please God? And so they were always trying to see what was just enough to pacify God. And as we hear that, we think, well, that doesn't sound right. I mean, we shouldn't have that attitude. I mean, that's, that's not cool. We should wanna give God our entire hearts. You know, we should wanna give him everything. We say that, if you, at least if you grew up in church, you probably know that but don't we sometimes have the same attitude, at least the same thoughts? We may not say it out loud, but it's, you know, I wonder how many times I can go to church a month and it be enough for God. (laughs) I wonder how much I can give to the offering and it'll be enough to pacify God, make God happy. I wonder how much of scripture I really need to know in order to be good with God. Sometimes we think like that whether we realize it or not. It's a good question that this teacher of the law asks, but it's asked with bad motives, and we see Luke lets us know that his motives really are impure because it says that this guy was trying to test Jesus. See, he's trying to trap Jesus, and Jesus knows what's going on here, and so Jesus responds in this way. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? I love Jesus' response. He's like, okay, you're the teacher of the law. You're the expert, what do you say? What does the scripture say? Have at it, you answer your own question. I love that. And the guy responds like this. He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now those words should sound familiar to you because this is what Jesus has been teaching for some time. Jesus has been teaching for some time that the two greatest commandments in Scripture are to love God with everything you have, your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two greatest commandments, and all of God's law hangs on those two commandments. Jesus has been teaching that for some time. In fact, he first started teaching on this subject because he was being tested by another religious leader, and he was asked, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in all the Bible? And this one teacher of the law was hoping to trap Jesus because no matter what Jesus said he was going to argue and say, but how come you discounted this other one? But Jesus responded to that initial test prior to the passage we're reading today. He responded in this way. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, all of God's law, all the prophets hang on these two commandments. And when Jesus answered in that way, the religious elite, of his day, their mouths dropped. Because they couldn't argue with that. Jesus basically says, if you get these two things right, if you love God with everything you have and you love your neighbor as yourself, you love as God has loved you, you love God, love people, you do those two things, you will fulfill the rest of the law. But you can do all this other stuff if you miss one of these things and you're missing the main thing. You're missing what it's all about. They couldn't argue with that. And so... I think this guy in Luke chapter 10, who tests Jesus, I think he's been listening to Jesus Jesus teach. I think he's been paying attention. He's been following Jesus for some time, and so he is ready to test Jesus on a different level. He asks Jesus, hey, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, you tell me. He gives Jesus' answer right back to him, but then he's got a follow-up question. Look at his follow-up question. Jesus says, you have answered it correctly. You've been listening, you've been paying attention do this and you will live now i want you to notice this this is in the present tense do this and you will live in other words you will live right now see eternal life is not something that we just get when we die this is a side note but eternal life is something that starts now when we enter into a relationship with our eternal god When we enter into a relationship with him, eternal life begins now and it carries us into eternity. Eternal life begins now. We're not a people who are supposed to just sit on our hands and wait to die. We start living eternally now. Side note, but it's a good point, okay? So Jesus here says, you will live. But, it's an important word there, he wanted to justify himself, this teacher of the law, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's got his follow-up question. Who is my neighbor exactly? In other words, this guy wants to know who is it exactly that I am required to love? Okay, I hear you, Jesus. Love God, love people. I get it. I can do that. I love God, and I love people, but I just want to know what type of people exactly because there's no way I can love everybody. I mean, that's impossible, so who exactly do I need to love? What's the bare minimum when it comes to this definition of being a neighbor? I mean, what's the most narrow definition that you can possibly have and still please God? Who exactly is my neighbor? There's no way you can really mean all people. Who am I required to love? And who do I get a pass on when it comes to loving? That's what this guy wants to know. And this guy obviously thinks pretty highly of himself because what he's saying is, Who out there deserves my love? Who out there deserves my compassion, my generosity? Who deserves my love? And what you need to understand is that the Jews in this culture, in this day and age, they defined a neighbor as someone who is like them, someone who was a fellow Jew, someone who came from the same social, economic, religious, cultural, racial background as them and no one else was considered to be their neighbor. Because you see, they saw themselves as God's chosen people, and they were, but they misunderstood what that meant. See, God chose the Jewish nation to be a light to the rest of the world, to be a light to the rest of the nations. They missed that. They thought because we're God's chosen people, we're better than everybody else. And that means that everybody else isn't chosen by God. God has rejected them, and so they're all sinners going to hell, but we're the good people. That's how they took it. And what God meant by them being his chosen, his select people, I mean, they were supposed to be a witness to the rest of the world. They were supposed to bring the rest of the world to him, and they failed to do that. So they had this hatred, and I mean hatred, for those who weren't Jews, for those who weren't like them. And so what this guy is trying to get at is, hey Jesus, I love people, I do. I love people who are like me. Is that enough? And how Jesus responds is going to rock this guy's world. See, if you've been worshiping here at First Church for any time at all, you know what our mission is. Our mission statement is simple. It's five words. Love Jesus. Love like Jesus. It's so simple a child can say it, but it's profound at the same time. We love our mission statement. It's based on the two greatest commandments, love God, love people. And we say it like this, love Jesus, love like Jesus. That's what we're all about. And That's keeping the main thing the main thing. And if I were to ask you today, are you loving like Jesus, the second part of that mission statement. How would you respond? Yes! Well, I hope so. (laughs) If you're watching online, you didn't hear that. Somebody said, yes, okay. (laughs) But the question is, are you loving everyone as Jesus would love them? Because sometimes we say, yeah, I love like Jesus. I love people that are just like me, like Jesus. I love like Jesus when it comes to my family. I love like Jesus when it comes to my friends. I love like Jesus who, when it comes to people who look like me and talk like me and act like me and come from my same background. But do you love like Jesus when it comes to those who make you feel uncomfortable? Those who don't love you in return? Those who are hard and difficult to love? Those who aren't like you? Do you still love like Jesus? Because that's what we're called to do. See, every now and then I'll get a phone call or an email from a smaller church in our area or even sometimes in different parts of the country, and they're looking for a preacher, they're looking for a minister, and they'll ask me if I know anybody, if I can recommend somebody. And any time that a church is trying to network like that, I try to help them out if I can, and I will ask them some questions about their church. Tell me about your church. Tell me what type of candidate you're looking for exactly. And it never fails, every time I talk to a church, they will always say something like, well, we're a friendly church. I mean, that's like one of the first couple things that they say, we're a really friendly church. And I want them to define that for me. Because sometimes when they say we're a friendly church, what they mean is, we're friendly among ourselves. We're friendly with one another. They see themselves as a friendly church. In fact, I have never talked to a church ever that didn't think they were a friendly church, okay? All churches think they're friendly because they're friendly with themselves. But what I wanna know is, are you a hospitable church? Because there's a difference. Being a hospitable church means that you embrace and you welcome those who are strangers, those who are outsiders those who are different from you, there's a big difference between being a friendly church and being a hospitable church. It's easier for us to love people who are like us. What about those who are strangers to us? And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to define this word neighbor, but he's gonna do it in a way that rocks this guy's world and probably shakes everybody up who's listening. And he defines the word neighbor by telling a parable The parable starts off like this in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him Half dead. Now, as Jesus' first listeners were listening to this parable, they probably weren't shocked at the news that a guy was ambushed traveling this road. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a dangerous one. It actually dropped 3,000 feet, and there were cliffs and different caves where a lot of bandits and thieves and robbers could hide, and people died on this road a lot. People were ambushed a lot on this road. In fact, there was one little section of the road that was known as the path of blood because so many people had died there. So when Jesus says there's a guy walking alone on this really dangerous road and he was ambushed by some robbers, some thieves, his listeners are probably thinking, yeah, we hear about that all the time. That would not have shocked them. The shocking part of the story comes later. Jesus continues. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, the man who was in the ditch, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, another religious guy, when he came to the place and saw the man in the ditch, the man who was left for dead, passed by on the other side. So Jesus' listeners are hearing this parable, this story, And all of a sudden a priest comes by and a priest, I mean, this is somebody who taught people about God. This was a guy who represented God to the people. This was a guy who served in temple worship. And what you need to understand is both priests and Levites who served in temple worship, a lot of them actually didn't live in Jerusalem. They lived in the surrounding towns like Jericho. And so they would go for a certain period of time to do their duties, to do their service and then they would come back home to be with their families. And so we see this priest, he comes by this man in the ditch on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and I'm sure Jesus' first listeners were thinking, here's our hero of the story. This is the religious guy. It's one of his fellow Jewish brothers who's hurt. He's just finished teaching people about God. He's going to help this man out. But Jesus is the priest, walks around the man, passes by on the other side. Well, then here comes a Levite, another guy who assisted in temple worship, another religious guy, a fellow Jew again. And they think, okay, well, the priest didn't help, but this Levite will. And Jesus says, the Levite passes by on the other side as well, ignoring the man on the side of the road. And I'm sure that Jesus' first listeners were probably scratching their heads, but they were trying to rationalize why something like this would happen. I mean... Maybe they thought this was a setup or maybe these two guys who passed by, maybe they thought they would get ambushed too if they stopped and helped or maybe they had more important things to do back in Jericho or whatever. They're probably trying to rationalize why this just happened. And then Jesus throws a complete curveball at them with three words, but a Samaritan. That's what Jesus says next. And I'm sure Jesus Listeners are probably thinking, huh? You see, what you need to understand is Samaritans, they were despised by the Jewish people, even more so than everyone else who wasn't a Jew. You see, Samaritans, they were those who had intermarried with Gentiles, those who were outside of the Jewish race. So just imagine as much as the Jewish people didn't like those who weren't Jews, They had deep-seated hatred for Samaritans because they were their people in their mindset who'd abandoned their Jewish roots in their faith. They despised the Samaritans. They hated them. There was real cultural and religious and political tension that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. And if you can imagine two people that are the least likely to help one another out, it would be a Jew and a Samaritan. In fact, we have traditions, historical traditions that state that Jews would literally go around the region of Samaria so that they wouldn't have to meet a Samaritan, they would travel around and sometimes it would take them an extra couple days on a journey to go around Samaria, but it was worth it just not to have an interaction with a Samaritan, they despised the Samaritans. here's the thing, the Samaritans felt the same about the Jews. They did not like one another, and so when Jesus says, but a Samaritan, probably the people got a little, people listening got a little nervous. What's he doing here? And Jesus continues on in the story. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So at great personal cost, this Samaritan, the most unlikely person to help out a Jew, helps out this man in the ditch. And Jesus tells us why this Samaritan helped out this man. It's because this Samaritan had pity for the man. And this word pity is also translated in different parts of the gospels as compassion. That's what this word means. It's the Greek word spagmitsomai. We've talked about this word before. It means to hurt when you see someone else in pain. To have physical hurt in your stomach because you see someone else hurting. And that pain in your stomach won't go away until you do something about it. It's a pain that you have that forces you to act in order to help someone else out who's in pain. And what's interesting is this word spagnizomai is used over and over and over again to describe Jesus' heart for people. Throughout the Gospels, when Jesus sees somebody hurting or somebody in need or somebody who's poor or somebody who's hungry or somebody who's sick, when he sees people in need, over and over again, the Gospel writers tell us that he had compassion on them. He had splog Nitsomai for them. He hurt for them, and so he did something about it. And what's interesting is I think this is the whole reason why Jesus came to the earth in the first place. God saw us hurting in pain because of what sin had done and God said I got to do something about it he hurt along with us see compassion is doing something about the pain you see someone else experiencing and so Jesus basically lets us know this Samaritan the reason why he helped this guy out in the ditch is because he has God's heart And then after revealing this, he turns to the teacher of the law who originally asked him the question and Jesus then says to him, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Did you notice how this teacher of the law can't even (laughs) choke out the word Samaritan, you know? Can't even say the word Samaritan. The guy that helped him out, I guess. And Jesus says, yeah. He was the real neighbor to this man because he had God's heart. And Jesus here is letting us know, he's teaching us that our neighbors, they're those who are right in front of us. That's who our neighbors are. It's whoever is right in front of you who has a need. See, being a good neighbor means seeing a need and then meeting that need, whatever it is. Regardless of someone's background, regardless of their cultural, social, economic, racial background, you name it. Regardless of who they are, their past, where they've been, what they've done. When you see a need, if you can help that need, you do everything you can to meet that need. See a need, meet a need, that's what it means to be a good neighbor. And what Jesus is letting us know is we don't get to be selective about who deserves our compassion. That's not our call. And every time I read this passage, I have to examine myself to make sure that I identify with the right person in this story. Because I'm sure that when this teacher of the law heard Jesus tell the parable, he knew right away he identified with the wrong person. See, really, there are three attitudes that are expressed in this story, this parable of the Good Samaritan. The first is that of the takers or the thieves. This is the mindset that says what's yours is mine. The thieves are those who are just selfish. They want to take what belongs to somebody else. And we know people like this who are just pure takers. They take and they take and they take from you, but they never want to give anything in return whatsoever. And when churches are full of takers, churches are extremely unhealthy. Because people come and, hey, I want what I can get from the church. I'm gonna take and I'm gonna take and I'm gonna take and I'm gonna be a leech and I'm gonna suck the life out of everybody else and then when I don't get what I want, I'll move on to the next church and I'll stay there until they stop giving me what I want. They're the takers. Then there's another group that's identified here, the avoiders, I think this is represented by the priest and the Levite. These are the people that say what's mine is mine. In other words, The avoiders are those who say, hey, as long as I got my salvation, I'm good. As long as I'm saved, as long as my family's saved, I'm not going to take a risk to help anybody else out. I'm not going to make a sacrifice to try to serve somebody else. As long as I'm good with God, well, you're not if you're not helping anybody else. But in their mindset, as long as I'm saved, as long as I've been dunked in water, been baptized, and I'm good, and I got my get into heaven free card, I'm not going to take a risk and try to help anybody else out. Let them worry about themselves. I'll just avoid them. And these people, they have very little eternal impact in this world. But then there's one more group represented. These are the difference makers, which is again, well, it's represented by the Samaritan, of course. And this is the mindset that says, what's mine is God's. In other words, these people say, hey, everything I have doesn't belong to me anyway. It's a gift from God. And so I want to use whatever resources, whatever God has given me in the same way that God would use it if he was standing right here in my shoes. What's mine isn't mine. What's mine is God's. And so therefore, what's mine is yours if I can help you out. That's the Samaritan in this passage. And I wonder, does that describe your life right now? Because as followers of Jesus, we're not here to sit on our hands We're not here just to get baptized and get our baptismal certificate and then we just wait until we die one day. We're here to make a difference in this world. We're here to change lives. And I know right now the culture that we live in, I hear so many people say, I just don't like the way our culture is going and there's so much sin and there's so much darkness. Guys, that's why we're here. We're not supposed to sit back and just say, well, just come Lord Jesus, even though we all want him to come. I hope he comes today. But here's the thing. We say come Lord Jesus, but until he does, we do everything we can to bring heaven to earth. We do everything we can to invade the sadness of earth with the joy of heaven. That's why we're here, to be difference makers in this world. And what's interesting to me is a word that's used in this passage, which you may have just overlooked, but it's the word "down." It says that the priest and the Levite were traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's an important word because remember what I said? When you left Jerusalem, you were always going down. Jerusalem was situated on a plateau. So it didn't matter how you left Jerusalem, you were always going down. And actually, Jericho is north of Jerusalem. So it's not talking about that they went south. They're going down. They're going down this decrease and they're, um, they're going down a hill basically in order to get to Jericho. And what this lets us know is, these guys are leaving worship. These guys have just finished leading other people in worship, helping other people know who God is, teaching about God, teaching about the scripture. They've just finished experiencing God for an extended period of time in temple worship. And after they leave their time in worship, their worship of God has not changed their hearts whatsoever. And guys, if we show up to church week in and week out and walk out those doors, and what we have heard here doesn't change us to want to go out and see a need and meet a need, then we're failing at our mission. We're here to change the world. We started off this series by having Dave Stone come and speak for us did a great job and in the time that I've gotten to know Dave Stone he's just such an encourager and such a great guy but I was reading one of Dave's books the other day and I later text him and asked him about it but he he put in the book that every family needs a mission statement kind of like how we as a church have a mission statement because your family needs to know you're here to live on mission so you need a mission statement that you can keep pointing back to you can point your kids to, your spouse's, spouse to, and say, this is why we're here. This is why we exist as a family. And as a Christian family, we're here to change the world. And so in his book, he gives some examples of some mission statements. You know, some people, they just use Scripture, and they say, our mission is to do to others as you would have them do to you. Or our mission is to, this one says, we exist to love and honor Jesus Christ by living for his kingdom and letting our light shine so that others will be fully devoted to him. Other people say to live unselfishly with grace and prayerful concern, to be servants who love people every single day. This one person just said to raise children who will love God and love people and change the world. I like that a lot. Dave said that his family's mission statement was to go to heaven when we die and take as many people with us as we can. I love that. So Alice and I started talking and we said, I think we need a mission statement. And so we tell our kids a lot that we're to love Jesus and love like Jesus. That's our church statement. What if that became our family's personal mission statement as well? And what if we posted it in our house? Because that's what Dave encourages you to do. Frame it. Put it in your house so that you can keep pointing back to it. And we have a member of our staff who's pretty artistic. And so I had her made up a sign. We haven't put it up because she's not finished with it. She's still working on it. That just says, love Jesus, love like Jesus. I thought about even seeing if she can add something to it and say love Jesus, love like Jesus, and change the world because I think that's what we're here to do. But we're going to post this when it's finished in our home. And we're going to keep pointing back to it as a family because we believe we're here to make a difference. We're not here to sit on our hands. We're not here just to wait until we die. We're here to change the world. That's what our family's purpose is. And I wonder, are you instilling that in your family? Because did you catch what Jesus said? Jesus said, when he finished this parable, go and do likewise. See, we're supposed to be the Samaritan. We're supposed to be the difference makers. And this teacher of the law, he asked the wrong question. He asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus lets him know that's the wrong question. See, instead of of thinking about who deserves to be on your neighbor list, go and be a neighbor, Jesus, quit thinking about who deserves to be on your list, who you should love, who deserves your love, and just go be a neighbor to whoever needs you to be a neighbor. That's what God is calling you to do. And we don't get to be selective about who deserves our compassion. This week, we were able to celebrate the life of a a great servant of God. We had the funeral this week of Ben Killian, who served for years as our senior adults minister and served for years before that as a preaching minister and located ministry, 60 some odd years of ministry. And many of you knew Ben, love him dearly, and you know what a faithful man of God he was and now he's living out his reward, the reward that he preached about for so many years. But it's interesting to me there's one thing that Ben said the last year that he was employed here at First Church. See, Matt Thomason and Matt Proctor and myself, who were part of the funeral service, we got to sit down with the family and share stories. And as we were sharing stories, Matt Thomason brought this up and he shared it at the funeral message this past week. See, Matt, uh Matt Thompson, as our executive minister, if he gets to do staff evaluations for those who are, you know, under him on our org chart. And Ben was under him, so Matt got to do his evaluation. And Matt said, you know, doing a staff evaluation of Ben Killian was like sitting across from Moses. You know, how exactly do you evaluate this man? And really, it was more him just listening to Ben talk and getting wisdom from him. But on his written evaluation, Ben wrote something as a goal for the next year that Matt shared in the funeral, and I wanted to share with you in case you didn't hear it. Ben wrote that in the upcoming year, he wanted to be more intentional in inviting people to accept Jesus. Ben had devoted his life to telling people about Jesus. We will never know the number of lives that were impacted because of his ministry. He was a servant of servants. You guys know that. He preached for years. He baptized countless numbers of people. We have no idea how many lives were impacted because he was faithful to God. God used him in incredible ways, and yet in his 80s, He says, my goal for next year is to be more intentional about inviting people to accept Jesus. You know why? Because Ben had that compassion that Jesus is talking about. He knew there were people who were hurting, and he knew that he was here not to waste time, but every moment he got, he was going to share the good news about Jesus. He was going to be a neighbor to those who needed him. So I'm going to ask you as we wrap up this series and wrap up this sermon today to pray two things. The first thing I want you to pray is this. God, reveal any neighbors I've been overlooking. If there's somebody right now in your life that you've been overlooking, you've been passing by, you've been going to the other side of the road, reveal them. Ask God to reveal them to you so that you will know exactly who you need to be on the lookout for. But then the second thing that I want you to pray is this. God, Help me be the neighbor someone in front of me needs. Don't let me define their needs. Let me see their needs for what they are. And let me meet those needs, God, in the way that you want me to. The quality and the quantity of our love will prove to the world that we are who we claim to be, followers of Jesus. Guys, let's not let love Jesus, love light Jesus just be something we wear on a t-shirt. Let's go out and love all people as Jesus has loved us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for today and this moment we've had to open up your word and we pray that we won't be trying to keep track of who needs to be on our neighbor list, but we will actually go out and be neighbors, good neighbors to those in need. We thank you so much for Jesus, our example, and we just wanna go out and love like him and it's through his name that I pray. Amen.